Bobby's in my in the MC Drape tech on the beat Let's go, y'all Northwest and let's go Check it out, y'all Hey, hey I said Nathan Graber Lupin Man, aka NGL His show is the truth Like NGL That means he's not gonna lie And he's clever when he speaks Plus he runs unplugged That's the editor-in-chief Special guests on this show Have gotten exposure Discuss the sports, music, and popular culture Streetwear And don't forget the entrepreneurs Cause when it comes to interviewers Man, this dude is the future Always keeping it current With the old and with the new Make sure you tune into the GL Review Welcome back to the GL Review Thanks to freestyle rapping legend Sam I Am The MC For that awesome intro theme You can follow along with his work At Sam I Am The MC On Twitter and Instagram For now though, I'm Nathan Graber-Lipperman Creator and editor-in-chief of Unplugged as well as the CEO of Powder Blue Media. Our media startup ran out of Northwestern's very own incubator, The Garage. Every Friday, I'm bringing you special interviews and guest panelists to recap what's happening in sports and culture before diving into some of my more eclectic interests such as streetwear, entrepreneurship, and ultimate frisbee. And today, I'm bringing you a guy who, I mean, even on his own personal website, he describes himself as the coolest guy on earth. You can be the judge after hearing his story. Anyway, it's Jake Nickel, the founder and CEO of Threadless. Like pretty much everyone I seem to talk to, I met Jake right here in the garage when he came to speak to us. Uh, He invited me to come down to Threadless headquarters, located in the West Loop in downtown Chicago. We talked all about the intersection of arts, entrepreneurship, and how Threadless is innovating as a company moving forward. I really enjoyed that conversation with Jake, and I'm hoping you do as well. Also, though, I woke up on... Another Jake, my older brother, Jake Graber-Lipperman, just graduated from Duke University with a degree in economics. We talked about the end games. Two different pop culture entities just came to a close in the Avengers and Game of Thrones, as well as his college career ending. He had a lot of good thoughts on them both as someone who loves the MCU yet hated Endgame. And simultaneously with Game of Thrones, he read the books way before I even did, loved them, yet never stuck around with the show. Still... He watched the last three episodes of season eight to see how the story concluded. Had a fun time talking with him, as always. If you've listened before, you know he's a pretty silly guy. Um, but yeah, fun time talking with him, especially as he reflected on his experiences going to pretty much every Duke basketball game, watching Zion up close and personal, going out on that note and more. Before we get into it all, though, you know, usually I take some time to shout out everything we're doing over at Unplugged. Today, I'm also excited to announce that 42, our second online publication, is officially launching in full with some awesome new stories. With that being said, though, I'll explain both moving forward a little bit. I'm also going to take some time at the beginning of each episode to reflect on where we're at as a company and what comes next. Because, you know, the entrepreneurial lifestyle is one that gets glorified a lot nowadays. It's kind of a buzzword, especially in college circles. But when someone says it's a journey, it, it's really that. The, the highs are high, and the lows can be really, really low. Um, but in any event, I'm going to touch on what I mean by this in a sec. For now, if you want to just skip to a Threadless interview or talk with my big bro, check out the timestamps in the description below. Anyway, one of the things I find we gloss over when we talk about entrepreneurship is just how much time you're putting into this, especially when it comes to creating content. Now, Anyone who creates content knows this. I mean, video producers, journalists, musicians, the like. But for most startups, you're selling a physical product or software, for example. 
The term content has actually become almost a buzzword in startup circles regarding all the time you put into marketing your product, into, you know, humanizing it, into building up a following that will fall in love with your baby. But, you know, there are people who have this exact job for startups, creating content such as podcasts, social media, graphics, and more, purely just to market the thing. Well, kind of pose the question, what if your entire startup is based on content? And what if your core brand identity is making that content as high quality as possible? Something I thought a lot about this week as I stayed up until 1 a.m. trying to connect with my brother for this podcast this past Tuesday. We did it, we recorded, and then I walked home, took a shower. By the time I went to bed, it was 3 a.m. And then the next day, Wednesday, I've had this interview in my back pocket for a while now with Bryce Merrill, the head coach of the BYU men's ultimate Frisbee team. If you don't know the story, BYU Kai has finished in the top 20 in the country for the last four years, culminating in eighth place finish this season. Yet, they can't play at the national championships because in order to qualify, you have to play at smaller regional tournaments that require you to play on Sundays, which is a problem given that their school requires all students to take this day off. Most of the players choose to not play on Sundays anyway. Now, this is a great story. I interviewed Bryce and a bunch of players on the team for it. You should go check it out on Unplugged regardless. The thing was for me, though, I wanted to sit down and write it for like the entire last month. But I just couldn't because of all the different stuff that needs to get done with a startup. I mean, there's events to go to, there's networking to do, there's marketing, building out a damn revenue stream, figuring out what the hell our vision truly is. As CEO, it's kind of hard for me to sit down and get back to the reason I created this thing in the first place. It's kind of just for the love of creating dope shit, if I do say so myself. But anyway, to do so, to create dope shit, it requires sitting down and staying up way too late, which I did until 6 a.m. Thursday morning. Quick aside, sorry, mom, but <laughs> I got it done and I was really happy with the end product. There's been a great response to it, about 1,500 views in uh, one and a half days. You know, I've stayed up, made some graphics for social media. Turns out, though, that when I woke up at 1045 uh, on Thursday, I got a notification from Facebook that the showcase we were a part of was that day. And it was starting in three hours, unlike the notification on my calendar that the event was this upcoming Saturday. We hadn't prepared anything for this. So I got up, had a bowl of cereal, threw something together for the next three hours, then ran over to the event. I pitched our product to people for the next three to four hours, which was awesome. People really liked what we were doing. We got like 20 people to sign up for our email newsletter. Unfortunately, we didn't win any money. The grand prize was $1,200, which would have been amazing. Second place got 800 and third got 400 too. A lot more money in it than I thought. And by 6 p.m., regardless, though, I was operating on roughly four or five hours of sleep and one bowl of cereal. I promptly went to bed at 8 p.m. after having dinner, of course. Look, this is the entrepreneurial lifestyle, right? It means expecting the unexpected. It means life throwing crazy shit your way every waking moment, sometimes when you're sleeping, too. <laughs> It's easy to editorialize everything I just laid out and say, yeah, I stay up working late on things. That's just part of the lifestyle. But I find it's hard to really grasp what building something from the ground up really explicitly entails. Now, moving forward, how do we monetize that content? Yep, that's the next step. In any event, that's that. Thanks for listening to my side of things. If you want to hear more, reach out. I'll be updating you all more and more every week as we continue to build Powder Blue Media. Also, make sure to check out 42 our second online publication, as we start to roll out stories from you, our community, on the Gen Z life, universe, and everything. Sam Baldwin, our editor-in-chief, wrote a great letter from the editor that's already up on the site. 
To learn more about it, go check it out at 42.powderbluemedia.com and follow on Twitter at 42 by Powder Blue. This is a project that's been in the works for over a year. And I just want to shout out Sam and Vicki Woodburn, our head of PR, for working really hard on this thing and turning my dream into a reality. Without further ado, though, here's Jake Nichol. I'm here with Jake Nichol, the founder of Threadless. Jake, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you? You know, pretty great. It's it's always awesome coming down here into the West Loop, this awesome area of Chicago, all the great techie startups, whatnot. Yeah. Well, I just asked you before we started recording, is Threadless a startup? You know, I don't mind when people say that, mm-hmm. but I don't really feel that way now. I mean, it's a 20-year-old company. We do have a lot of projects internally that are that feel like little startups within mm-hmm. the company, but the business itself does feel kind of like established, I guess. Is there something to be said for like startup culture though? Like building that in terms of your office space and everything? Yeah, I mean, yeah, when it comes to the office space and just the energy, I guess, around mm-hmm. what we do, um, we have a sense of urgency and like scrappiness towards what we do. Like um, we try to come up with the easiest solutions to problems, you know? And so I think we have that kind of, just in our culture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I prefaced this as my first question when I was pointing out what I wanted to talk to you about, but mm-hmm. I guess luckily you noticed it when I walked in the room, but um, like thoughts on the Big Lebowski shirt what's <laughs> and the film itself. We were talking about it for a little bit. Well, I need to rewatch the film. I've only saw it once when mm-hmm. it first came out, but we did a deal with um, Big Lebowski a while back to do um, design challenges where artists could submit designs for Big Lebowski. Mm-hmm. And so we came up with all this, I think we printed maybe a dozen or so designs from the challenge. Um, and they did really well, but I mean, I could go on a whole tangent about licensing with threadless, uh, but I don't know if that's the right time for this. <laughs> but, um, yeah. I, I do remember now that you say that there was that competition. Well, there's always competitions yeah. with threadless. Um, I mean, just building off that, th- this is a tough question on the spot, but what's your favorite t-shirt that Threadless has made? So I find that the one that I always come back to is called My Little Pony, and it was by an artist named Ken with like 15 N's, <laughs> and he's from Canada, and he uh, it's just this amazing artist that I really like. His, his art has evolved a lot over the years, but this design came out maybe in 2004, and it's this woman who's like holding her baby away in horror because she had just stepped on a pony and it's <laughs> with her high heel and it's mm-hmm. like bleeding out and it's terrible it's a terrible design and it sold terribly it's one mm-hmm. of the first designs we printed where we actually didn't sell the inventory that we made <laughs> and so i think my tastes are a little bit different than our customers <laughs> to be honest it's fair to be unique i mean i i a lot of my friends will always say I'm very anti-mainstream, you know, counterculture, but like the Communist Party shirt, that's oh, just an all-time yeah. classic. What's yeah. what's the story behind that? Um, there's a guy named Tom Burns who designed that. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a good play on words where all these famous yeah. communists are <laughs> just partying, you know, and it struck a nerve. I think it's like an iconic, very simple design. As soon as you see it, you get it. Um, but it has, it's, it's well drawn and it has some kind of meaning behind it. Um, but there's been recently some not so great, uh, press about that design where somebody, somebody in a, 
like a white supremacist organization was wearing it. So that made, didn't make me feel too good. <laughs> that will do it. But maybe all press is good press. Who knows? Yeah. Right. I don't know. Um, yeah, I do have to say I was looking at the bestsellers list and just a lot of the Threadless shirts. Mr. Mitten's Big Adventure, too. Oh, That's yeah. a personal favorite. Yeah. Um, to this point and everything, though, you know, Threadless's tagline is make great together. Mm-hmm. I always thought of Threadless as an online marketplace for artists to sell their designs. You know, you all help make the designs into a reality along the way and helping artists, yeah. uh, you know, profit off their art. But, you know, while a lot of people have heard of Threadless, a lot of people haven't. So how would you describe Threadless in your own way? Like, what's your quick elevator pitch? Yeah. So, I mean, we, we, our company kind of inspired the term crowdsourcing mm-hmm. and we started taking ourselves a little too seriously for a couple of years when that first happened <laughs> in about 2005 or so. And, um, we started to take a look back at like why we really started, you know, mm-hmm. and what Threadless is about is, it's just like artists online kind of having fun, making stuff together, <laughs> like mm-hmm. making cool art together. Um, and that's really the essence of it. Um, a lot of people upload their designs to Threadless, get feedback, and the design is never made into a product. And that process is just as valuable to them as winning the challenge, um, getting their design scored and commented on and doing collaborations with other artists. Whether or not the art, the art ever becomes a product is kind of secondary to that. Um, you know, it's really exciting for people to win the challenge, but only one-tenth of one percent ever have won. And people continue to submit. Mm-hmm. There's people who have submitted 300 designs and never been printed. So we feel like, you know, it's really just about making art together online, sharing it, having a community that appreciates it and wants to see it and mm-hmm. share it and talk about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, just touching on that, you know, process, the voting process that goes into Threadless. Mm-hmm. Walk me through what it takes for a t-shirt to be made at Threadless for something to go from idea to design to actually being voted on and printed on a t-shirt to being sold. Yeah. So a lot of times, you know, artists will have different processes for how they get from, you know, an idea to the actual execution. Some artists use, you know, tangible media. Some are pure digital. Some people will go straight to the final high res files. Some people will do sketches. And, you know, so everybody's process varies there. A lot of people do collaborations with other artists, too, to get there. Um, In fact, there's a number of artists on Threadless who collaborate with people who just come up with the idea. So you have somebody who has an idea for a t-shirt and the other, the artist actually, you know, draws it. Um, and then once a design is submitted, what, it, what is actually submitted to Threadless is not the high res print ready artwork. It's more of like a presentation of what the design will look like once it's printed. So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a digital mock-up of the product. Um, and sometimes that will be done in different ways and unique ways. Like you, you can, use different templates or even like, you know, print one off and take a picture of it mm-hmm. and submit it. So the whole presentation process is a thing in and of itself. Like how do you take your concept and market it so that people will like it when they vote on it? So then the voting process, people who design stuff usually share with all their friends and family to go vote on it. Um, and then we have a section of the website where you can browse stuff and vote on it. It's on a scale of one to five, just, if a one is you don't really like it that much, five is you love it. It's pretty simple, kind of like a star system. Mm-hmm. And then <laughs> every week, everybody here at Threadless staff looks through the top scoring designs of that week mm-hmm. and picks one 
ones that they think would sell well within our platform. And we look at all the voting data when we make those decisions. Um, but it's not a pure, you know, top voted design is definitely printed. There's a layer of curation that goes into it here. Um, and it's a few levels. So first level is everybody on staff looks at it. Mm -hmm. Second level is there's a brand management team here of about eight people who look at what the rest of the staff thought. And they have in we have in-person meetings where we actually go through all every week, mm -hmm. go through the designs on screen, debate them. And there's okay. a voting system there. <laughs> and then once we actually choose one to go to print, the artist is notified. We have to get the high-res artwork from the artist because mm -hmm. we don't even have that yet. Yeah. Um, and then the process of actually producing the product and putting it up for sale on the website and then marketing it and, you know, all of that. And so do you all screen print them or digitally print them? Is that like everything's, here? Or? Everything's digitally printed digitally now printed. as of about four years ago. Okay. We made the switch. Um, we felt like the cost and the quality was getting to the point where it's... Uh, I mean, it's on par with screen print. Mm -hmm. um, there's still some stuff that digital does better than screen print and some stuff that screen print does better than digital. Um, but yeah. the benefit of being able to uh, make product on demand and not have to take inventory is just huge for us to be able to print more artists and mm -hmm. take more risks on the art we print. Um, and yeah, so that is all done at a network of suppliers that we have mm -hmm. around the world. So we, we have all this software that we've built to route and load balance um, orders to suppliers. Mm -hmm. So the kind of things that we look at is like, how close is the customer to the supplier to make sure it ships as quickly as it possibly can to that customer? Um, how are our quality um, reviews tr uh, trickling down to the supplier? Because we want to send it to the suppliers who are producing the most top quality products. Um, there's also like some suppliers can make iPhone cases and t-shirts mm -hmm. and some suppliers can only make t-shirts. And if the customer has an order that has both an iPhone case and a t-shirt in it, we want to ship those together rather than having two packages. So we've integrated with 25 different suppliers and some of those suppliers have, you know, 10 locations. So, I mean, there's a crazy network of, of suppliers that drop ship direct to the customer based on all the software mm -hmm. algorithm we, algorithms we built. And you all make hats too, right? <laughs> yeah. And hats, there's a whole uh, category of inventory, virtual inventory, where the hats actually have a cost to setting them up. Um, you can't just go straight to print with a hat with a design without setting it up first. But you don't have to make inventory. You can Once they're set up, you can um, produce them on demand to order. So mm -hmm. our hats are embroidered to order. Yeah. No, I mean, that that's, that's a process in of itself. And yeah. it's awesome to hear that you all are actually in meetings, like looking at the different designs. Like that's, that's work, you know, oh, yeah, yeah. that's what you come to the office for. Um, I do think I'd mentioned when we talked in the garage that, um, I ran a t-shirt company in mm -hmm. high school. The more I go into the space, it seems like every entrepreneur ran a t-shirt company at one point <laughs> yeah. or another. Um, but I do think it's funny how you talked about, you know, presentation, how important that is because mm -hmm. like, you know, running it in high school, a lot of the time, um, high schoolers aren't very reliable, you know, one day they'll be like, Hey, can you design this? And it's like, okay, sure. It's like, actually, can you change that? Can you change that? Can you change right. that? You know, I don't actually want to pay for it. Like go, go your own way. So mm -hmm. it is funny that you are still, as you said, like 10% of designs, 
get picked, right? Yeah. Well, one tenth of one percent. One tenth of one percent. (laughs) That's just even more astounding. And yet people are still creating it, right? People are still going and going. And that just speaks to the testament of Threadless, what you all are going for. Um, Before we get into your story a little bit more, I mean, this might relate directly with it. Threadless essentially started in 2000, right? And in 2002, you formed Skinny Corp LLC. Mm Mm-hmm. What's what's the background of this like? There's got to be something, right? Skinny Corp. Yeah. So before Skinny Corp, I was doing freelance web development under the name Skinny Lad. <laughs> so SkinnyLad.com was kind of like my portfolio website where I would have a bunch of uh, websites that I built, and you know, Threadless was one of them. It was always like a, one of the projects in my portfolio, and um, I was I had a job as a web developer around then. And I was doing work on the side whenever a friend or contact that found me online would need a website. I would, and these were like maybe five to $15,000 jobs that I would do every once in a while. And I finally felt like there was enough work coming in at that size where I could quit my job and start doing it full time. Mm-hmm. And so Skinny Lad, when it became um, you know full time, I, I incorporated it and made it Skinny Corp and brought on a a friend who came and joined me as a co-founder, um, we started doing web design projects for clients. So we, I mean, we've done websites for like Office Depot, Kohler, McDonald's, uh, you know, just a bunch of projects. A lot of them were through agencies here in Chicago and they we were kind of known as being a, uh, Macromedia flash shop. Like a lot of agencies okay. didn't have flash talent in, mm-hmm internally so they would outsource jobs to us and we were also really good at incorporating databases into websites um so like we did gatorade.com's navigation in a way where they had a content management system where they could like update it in the back end you know Mm -hmm. um and it was a flash-based navigation so all these little projects like that and then in 2004 we, we were kind of reviewing the year looking back at our bank account and we saw that we actually made more money on Threadless than we did through all the client work that we were doing. Mm-hmm. And we were spending 85, 90% of our time doing the client work. And we kind of hated it. <laughs> like We didn't really enjoy the work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we decided we're going to fire all of our clients and just focus on our own internal projects. Mm-hmm. But we didn't really see, for some reason, our thinking wasn't that we need to focus on Threadless. It was that we need to start up more companies. <laughs> So we started like uh, a music company called 15 Megs of Fame. We were selling bumper stickers online (laughs) on a site called I Park Like an Idiot. (laughs) And then we had like a pattern-based design company called Naked and Angry where people submitted patterns and then we would make stuff like umbrellas or neckties or wallpaper or dish sets out of that. It's kind of like Threadless, but for anything that you could print a pattern on. Mm -hmm. and countless others there was a website called extra tasty yeah (laughs) that was a fun one because it was like you could enter in all the like booze and ingredients that you have in your at at your house and it Mm. would tell you what cocktails you can make with that okay yeah (laughs) and it would even tell you if you just had this one more ingredient you could make this stuff too (laughs) like and the idea that monetized that was that we were going to sell like keywords so everything was generic it was Mm -hmm. just be like vodka and we were thinking what if absolute paid to be have all the recipes on the website be with 
absolute vodka, <laughs> but that never panned out. None of the, none of those, none of the, these businesses ever panned out. But Threadless has lived on. Yeah. And so, I mean, moving into your story, you started Threadless as a sophomore at Illinois Institute of Art. Yep. Um, and you ended up dropping out. Was that because you wanted to pursue Threadless? Was it because of other reasons? And also just um, because in case my mom's listening, uh, how come this is such a common theme amongst entrepreneurs? You know, does it have to be that way? Well, <laughs> so I don't think I would have, like I didn't quit my job mm-hmm. until I knew that I had um, something that was working, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I didn't drop out until, so the, really the, the thought was um, I hired my first employee, right? And so I started realizing that like, I needed to manage this person and I needed to be there and I couldn't because I was going to school. And so I went down this path of trying to, um, test out. I only had, you know, I had two years left and I had, I think I had like 13 credits left mm-hmm. or something when I made the decision. Maybe it was my junior year that I dropped out. Yeah. Cause I started it myself oh, okay. year, dropped out the junior year. Um, so I had 13 credits left and I talked to the Dean and I actually got, tested out on seven of them. So I only had five credits left and I could have even squeezed them all into a single semester. But really the straw that broke the camel's back was that the one class that he would, one of the seven classes that he wouldn't let me test out of, I actually wrote a chapter of the textbook that was required (laughs) for that class. It was on action script uh, five for flash. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, I I don't feel like I'm going to get any value out of this. Like, so I just decided to drop out. I figured I could come back if I needed to. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, things were going well enough where I just didn't, I didn't think I was taking too big of a risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it is just funny. Cause you're the second person in two weeks that, uh, I am interviewing that built their own companies that did drop out. So it yeah. is just such a funny dynamic that you do see every once in a while. Don't worry, mom, I'm not going to drop out. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I watched your Ted talk from 2011 TEDx mm-hmm. at a uh, Boulder and your whole theme a lot by what you live by, I'm assuming mm-hmm. still is, yeah. you know, you just want to make things in your case, that was art on your computer. Some of it code, some of it, you know, more of the traditional art, right? You know, we personally went through a lot of questions with our media company, power blue media, you know, like what's the vision statement, what's tying this all together. And we kept coming back to, we just want to create dope shit. Like mm-hmm. we want to make dope shit and, uh, put that out into the world. Yeah. So, I mean, there's that kind of common underlying theme, but just like big thing you talked about at TEDx was this idea that it's a human necessity to make things. So I was just wondering if you could expand on that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I really feel like, um, if I'm not making things, I get kind of restless and not happy, you know, like, um, I feel like just a, it's a need. Um, and there's just so much value that comes from it and it doesn't even have to be good things like i mean a lot of times it's as simple as just thinking about something in my head isn't quite enough and i need to write it down and just by doing that i feel like i'm accomplishing something even if it's something that by writing it down i realize is it's no good like just um putting it out there in the world or in your notebook i think just has so much power um in continuing your advancement like against whatever you're doing um i think yeah creating things is uh 
what we're kind of meant to be here for. It's funny, I'm reading the book Sapiens right now, and okay. this whole process started, like <laughs> came up in there. Um, I don't know if I could quote it quite right, but um, it's just like what makes us unique as humans, I think, is um, our ability to use our brains to do um, to our imaginations and stuff too, to create ideas and things out of nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and another one of the things you talked a lot about was, you know, you learn to make things by doing things. You said you learned code by just looking at HTML while you were browsing. Uh, you built a treehouse when you were 12, mm -hmm. um, just cause you just went out and did it. Um, is, is there something to that? Just, uh, you know, what gets, what, what is, correct about the idea that everything has to be taught to you and what are the flaws in that like what are yeah. how, how, do, what, how do you feel about you know like learning out in the field I guess you could right. say I mean I think it's different people learn in different ways and have mm -hmm. different comfort there um, I just think for me uh, I, I really learn by uh, doing it myself and figuring it out like kind of self-teaching so and I think when you do that the benefit that I've seen is that you, you end up approaching it in a different way um and it may not always be a better way or a worse way or you know um but i think i found that it allows me to explore things in a unique way um that sometimes you stumble across something that's that hasn't really been done before and in like in school you know i was an okay student like i got a's and b's and stuff but i didn't really enjoy the curriculum but I loved learning stuff outside of school. Mm -hmm. um, and I, like, my kids, I, I went to public schools my whole life. My, I was an army brat, and I moved around a lot. And mm -hmm. my kids I have in a Montessori school, and I love that method of teaching where um, it's more independent learning, and you learn about something when you're excited about it. You know, the whole classroom is just filled with these different works that are related to different topics, and the kids can go grab the one that they want to do in that moment and learn that thing in that moment. And I think when you're when you want to learn something rather than mm -hmm. it's three o'clock and we're going to learn history, um, you there, that motivation behind learning is really important too. Mm -hmm. And so I think that might be why I really enjoy you know self teaching is that it's kind of on my own terms too. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think there's a lot of people are scared to do it too, like. Photoshop, it might be a good example where you yeah. have your computer up and you open up Photoshop and there's just a million buttons and you're afraid if you click something that it's going to break your computer or something <laughs> like self checkout lanes. I remember <laughs> people will, like something goes wrong in a self checkout lane. They like literally step back a couple feet. Like, what did I do? You know, um, but I think, you know, nothing bad's going to happen. You just click every button and see what, see what it does. That is a good way to learn Photoshop along the way. I know. I remember you said in that TED Talk, that is how you learned it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, looking at Threadless again. So it was a side project for four years because for you, it was just a love. It was a passion. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the beginning, did you ever think like, this is going to be a business I'm going to work on? Because it's it's. I think about this idea a lot with a sales and marketing startup teacher I'm with right now who says, if you're not making money, it's a hobby. It's not a startup. So, mm -hmm. you know, in the early goings, were you just approaching it as I'm making what I want to make, you know, or was there always a dream for it to become a business? No, it was totally a hobby. There was no intention <laughs> to make any money. Um, I put, I did set up a separate bank account from it from the beginning, but it was mostly so that um, 
you know, I put 500 bucks in there and my co-founder put 500 bucks in there and we used every penny to, well, basically 80% of it was to print our first batch of shirts and the other 20% was to like do our, I think we um, hired an accountant to set us up as a, I think it was just a sole proprietorship to start, but mm-hmm. just to give us that advice. <laughs> yeah. To run, you, yeah. You can just run it through your own social security number. No big deal. Um, and then we were paying like 10 bucks a month for hosting. And for the first two years, every dollar that came from sales that went into that bank account was just used to make more inventory. And we didn't take a penny of it for years. Um, and it was totally a hobby, but it was a hobby that was at least able to fund itself. Like it wasn't, uh, something that I had to continue to put money into. Mm -hmm. Um, but the nice thing about thinking about it as a hobby instead of a startup is that I would want to do it whether it was financially successful or not. Mm-hmm. Like there was no fail. In the, there was no failure in terms of it being financially successful. This mm-hmm. is something I, and so it was only just icing on the cake that it turned into something that I could actually earn a living from. Um, and I think that's also why it was successful. You know, um, artists want to want to be a part of this community, not because they're helping some corporation, you know, improve their earnings. They, it's it's a community mm-hmm. of artists. Yeah. No, and I mean, so just looking from the early going, again, starts it. You started in two thousand. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, this is in the midst of the boom of the internet. How would you say Threadless evolved with the internet over time? How did you? Uh, strive to innovate because I mean as you mentioned at the top of this uh, in 2006 was when like crowdsourcing the term was coined and with you all in mind right 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 yeah 2000 was an interesting time I mean we're talking pre-Facebook (laughs) pre-MySpace like um, it's there was no Shopify like for e-commerce I mean we, we built everything from scratch like I mean my background was in code you know, as a web developer and I knew how to build this stuff and I built websites for, um, like CC music and CC video and deep discount DVD are three webs, three e-commerce websites I built in the early two thousands, late nineties, I guess. Um, so I knew how to build an e-commerce site. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it's changed so much. Now you can set up a e-commerce site like in a, you know, in an afternoon Mm -hmm. and start selling stuff. Big cartel, like things like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, a lot of our code is actually still from those days. So, you know, it it can be, it's challenging to bring in new developers and, you know, working with our spaghetti code over all these years. We did replatform recently. We started with cold fusion with an access database, which is just ridiculous. And we stored credit card numbers, plain text, and to process them, we would call a 1-800 number and enter them in in order to actually charge people's cards. Um, then we moved to a PHP LAMP stack. Um, and then re- more recently, we switched to Django. And our, you know, our, our Django platform is actually pretty modern and nice. And 80-90% of the website is now on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but... The other thing is the thing the thing that has affected our business more technology-wise is the digital printing because the thing that was really novel about our business model from say 2000 to 2010 is that we built this technology to overcome the issue with minimum order quantities really we didn't, without really knowing what we were doing mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean like 
with screen printing, before you could really digitally print a high quality product, screen printing has minimum order quantities where mm-hmm. you need to get order like, you know, 150 t-shirts for it to make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so since we built this voting system and we only print the best stuff and, you know, a thousand people are telling us that this is a great design that they want to wear, we had very little risk in printing it. Mm-hmm. We knew there's, there's a customer for these products before we even made them. Um, but then when digitally pr- digital printing became, uh, you know, I guess to the point where it could compete with screen printing, um, it kind of made our business model a little bit less relevant because artists, rather than uploading to Threadless and having a 0.01% chance of getting printed, they could just upload it somewhere else and start selling it right away with no, no contest or anything. They mm. don't have to compete to win. Um, so, you know, we started dabbling more and more in digital printing. We actually made an investment in another company um, who did that and sat on the board of that company for a while and learned a lot. And then um, we built our own. We, we started offering digital printing, I think, in, starting in 2009. And then we completely transitioned to by 2016 to complete all, everything digital. Um, and we've built new software too. So now now people can set up what we call an artist shop where you can set up your own e-commerce store that's white label. So it doesn't say Threadless on it. It's your own brand name. Um, and go into business using our supply chain. Mm-hmm. It's been pretty fun to build that. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I mean, you know, looking at your your history with tech, uh, your history, excuse me, with, with you know, computer science, with coding, mm-hmm. um, leading into Threadless, where it is today. Um, I remember when you spoke at the garage, if I'm remembering correctly, you said, like, you like to kind of sit in the back and just, like, code away and, like, constantly innovate and create new things. Um, yeah. As as someone who is obviously, you know, running the company in some degree is, is a key member of the executive staff. Um, I've talked to a lot of different people. One guy, Dave Wallens, for example, CEO of this company, Exploring Inc. that actually made like the Hamilton exhibition that's downtown. Um, his whole logic being CEO is he's like, it's chief executive, sorry, of mm-hmm. course, chief executive, chief employee officer, you know, his job, mm-hmm. he's not making anything physical anymore. Um, He's just checking in and having meetings with individual people like every day. That's his job. So, you know, um, h- how do you see like yourself fitting in with your company nowadays uh, as sort of this is this established thing? Do you prefer to take the hands off, um, you know, constantly innovate codeway in the back role or do you like to constantly meet and build your community, your culture? So I, I think you can be a successful CEO and have a few different ways of doing mm-hmm. so. Absolutely. Right? And um, I struggled with this for a long time. And that's why in 2009, I stepped down as CEO and mm-hmm. I hired a CEO. Um, and then I came back in 2012. And through that process, I learned that it's okay to be a product focused CEO. Mm-hmm. And um, there's some writing that I read about this too, that really helped me. Um, but by, by being a product-focused CEO, that doesn't mean I don't talk to people and I just Absolutely, build the products yeah. myself. <laughs> I spend a lot of my time not necessarily coding everything myself, but working with the team to mm-hmm. develop the products that we want to um, release. You know, And so we have, we're kind of unique in that we're a tech company that has both digital products and physical products. Um, and I, there's two um, people at this company, Dustin Hunlong and Mike Halgus, 
who both are the leaders of those two divisions in the company. And I've known both of them since fourth grade. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we work really well together. Um, and it, they're both very good at managing their teams too. Mm -hmm. um, and it, I think, yeah, when you're, if you're going to be a product-focused CEO, you need to make sure that you have people working around you who are very good at managing mm -hmm. um, and also on the finance and legal side yeah. of things too. I, and so it took me a long time to find um, a team that really offsets my shortcomings, you know, and actually helps me elevate the things that I'm good at. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know. I feel like, um, you know, Steve Jobs was a very product driven CEO, mm -hmm. very hands on with the, with the products yeah. that they developed. And, you know, some people work well that way and some people don't. Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't mean that Steve Jobs is sitting there actually like, you know, coding. Yeah. <laughs> and I code not maybe once a week or so. Yeah. Not talking to anyone. <laughs> right. No, you spend a lot of time actually with the people who are making your products. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, just kind of like wrapping it up, some like final thoughts, questions, uh, you know, there's, there's this whole idea that you spoke about at the garage. We talked a little bit about then and beforehand of, um, you know, like kind of like the mission goal threadless to create this place, this community where artists can profit off their work because so often it is difficult, mm -hmm. uh, in the, you know, marketplace. And, one of the projects we've been working on is actually this guy, Dan Grambau, out of the garage, mm -hmm. who started this uh, project called Dandelion, which aims to create affordable recording studios throughout the city of Chicago for mm -hmm. musicians and podcasters alike. Nice. Um, and they get to keep their masters and everything. Um, so this this idea of helping artists sell their work, it's, it's kind of intoxicating, right? It's kind of changed how we approach our business model moving forward as a media company and everything. Yeah. Um, what what about that has spoken to you over the years has like driven you and like how does it keep your passion going for it i mean first of all if it wasn't like if, we, if this company was just for selling t-shirts all day mm -hmm. i wouldn't be doing it anymore mm -hmm. it's uh very much about the artist and helping them get their work out into the world i think that i was kind of bummed just as a teenager i had some angst around like these things that you buy you go to the mall and like you it's the people who actually create them are getting such a small piece of the value chain. It's mostly like the businesses in between the, you know, the marketers and stuff who are um, merchandising it and turning it um, into things people will buy. The, like the creators kind of are in the a back seat. Um, and I feel like more and more technology will help bring that forward, bring the people who actually make things closer to the people who buy them. Mm -hmm. Um, and give those people who make things more and more of the value chain. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I, yeah, I just love that thought. There's a quote by like John Adams, I think, who wrote his wife while at war. And he's yeah. like, I go to war so that my son can be a politician. My son will be a politician so that his son can be a merchant. Um, his son will be a merchant so that his son can and it eventually trickles down to be an artist. Yeah. And, um, I really feel like it goes back to the initial making things thing. Like I, I think that, um, just continually lowering the barriers of entry for creators and, you know, that's the most important thing we can be doing. 
mm-hmm. not like going to war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's but, that, that's I mean, the lesson I was picking up. Yeah. No downside to. I mean, I don't mean to uh, disparage anybody who goes to war. <laughs> Obviously, I'm just saying that's a great aspirational direction for our society to move to towards. I think. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Two more questions for you. What's next for the company? What's next for Threadless, and what's next for you? Um, so for Threadless, um, we're finding more and more like distribution channels almost for, for us to help artists monetize their work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we've had this threadless.com, which you think of as a marketplace. Um, and then we built artist shops, which is kind of like a e-commerce platform where people can have their own brands beyond that. We're now like, we've had a ton of success at offline retail. So artists who do really well with their e-commerce platform, we're finding that we can put them into actual stores and make them even more money there, which is awesome. Um, and I think beyond that, there's other places like, um, I mean, digital, I think digital artwork has actually a while back did a deal with, uh, xbox where you could buy threadless shirts for your avatars okay um, and i feel like there's more and more stuff <laughs> like stuff like happening. online yeah like so it's so a, just not even physical t-shirts right. it's like wow yeah <laughs> and it was pretty cool and i think it yeah. was kind of the tip of the iceberg of what could happen there but mm-hmm. um i think you know finding more and more ways that we can help artists monetize their work we even do stuff for like street artists around the city we find them gigs where they can put up murals and stuff like that and i think we can act as a, almost an agent to artists and so many different ways to help them mm-hmm. monetize um and i also think that just within the printing industry everything's going digital it's kind of like any industry going digital music photography what happens when um apparel decoration is purely digital and what new business models will be built with that technology so i'm thinking a lot about that um you know it's right now there's about 15 billion apparel impressions decorated apparel impressions made per year Mm -hmm. and only about 800 million of those are currently digital okay and that's just growing every year so Mm -hmm. thinking a lot about that um so for me personally, I just love finding ways to use technology to be able to help artists monetize stuff at scale. And I've done that through Threadless. We've also made investments in other companies that are doing that. And um, I really have enjoyed doing that. We haven't done one in a while, but I could see getting back into that a little bit more personally. Because um, I think the hardest part, like it's easy to build the technology to help artists monetize themselves mm-hmm. the hard part is getting artists to actually start using it mm-hmm. and we have a lot of artists who um we can reach out to and offer those sorts of opportunities to so mm-hmm. it's kind of cool to help in whatever way we can i guess yeah <laughs> one last question i'm going to sneak in there yeah. so a lot of times when i talk to entrepreneurs people ceos people in the space um they're avid readers you know they like to quote things they've read and mm-hmm. you just were as well so like, let's say it's holiday season, right? And you have to buy a gift for someone. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, I, I'm going to buy a book. What's, what's your go-to? What's, what's the book you would most recommend to people? Well, the book that I most recently read that really affected me was uh, Make Time um, by Jake Knapp and John, I think his last name starts with a Z or something. Um, but he, they wrote this book, uh, about how to better utilize your time, not just 
within business, but within your personal life as well. And um, I made some pretty major changes based off that book. Like I actually, um, since October of last year, have not had even a web browser on my phone. I eliminated all social media, web browser, no email. Um, the only thing I really have on there is my, it's like my camera and text messages. Um, and a phone, I guess, <laughs> but that has been hugely valuable and it, it would be impossible for me to even consider that without having read this book. And even after reading the book, I, I debated it for a few weeks and then I was just like, I'm going to try it and I haven't gone back and it's been awesome. Mm-hmm. Hey, speaking of time, Jake has to run to his meeting. Thanks so much, Jake. Uh, to follow him on Twitter, you can find him at Ska, that's S-K-A-W. You can also log on to Threadless, threadless.com, check out all the new work and everything that's going on with them. Thanks so much, Jake. Yeah, thanks for having me. You know him. You love him. It's the big bro. It's the big boy. It's the recent Duke graduate, Jake Graber-Lipperman. How are you? Oh, what's good, fam? Oh, there was no like, there was no like, no like, I'm fine. I'm good. Yeah, you're good. And I want to know how you are. I never ask how you are. Yeah, that's true. Why, why, why don't you? I don't care about you. Okay. Well, I'm doing okay. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Just thriving. I'm glad to hear that. Got class in eight and a half hours when we're recording this at 1230 central time here on a Tuesday, I guess Wednesday morning. Going up on a Tuesday. That's how we do. But anyway, exactly why I brought Jake on for this episode, because hey, it's just fun. You know, it's fun to talk with the big bro. It's fun to find an excuse to talk because usually I hate talking to him. Um, but B, I mean, it's the end game, right? We joke so much. We use that term so much ever since Avengers officially announced that the movie would be called Endgame ever since Doctor Strange said those words in Infinity War. But I mean, three big things just came to a close. Three big things that were part of your life. I mean, obviously college, Duke basketball, that was a big part of what you were doing all that And the time. Portland Trailblazers in the Western Conference Finals. <laughs> you know that too. <laughs> but uh, no, college and Duke basketball, that whole experience. Um, also Avengers, of course, the, the original characters from the MCU, that's been a big part of your fandom, just in pop culture in general. And even if you hate to admit it, Game of Thrones, you read the books before even I did. You may not have kept up with the show, but even you had to... Uh, you know, follow as the show came to this climactic close. Uh, I mean, look, I, I just want to get this point across too. It's easy to wonder what the point of entertainment is, but I mean, look, the way in which it influences our lives, how much we, time we spend exploring these passions, it's actually just one of the greatest phenomena we know. So like, I mean, look, look at those three properties, these huge things that ended it when the, yeah, sorry, within like a month of each other. I'll let you rank him. Which do you think were the most important to your like day to day and even like overarching life? Did you just say Duke basketball is a property? <laughs> no, I'm I'm just confused. I want to make sure I know what you're asking. Not okay. Not property. I'm more saying like oh things in my life. Yeah. Um, I would imagine college is one, but you know, I'm yeah. Gonna you decide. Oh, 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 college. Oh, college was good. Uh, <laughs> um. I mean, it was obviously college. I don't think that's a weird question. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, college basketball was great, and I got to cap it off seeing Zion Williamson, who's the, the biggest star college basketball has ever, ever seen. Yeah, you got uh, to see him make it to Elite Eight and lose. Again. 
I, I, I didn't see a single Final Four appearance for Duke. Uh, if we win next year, I'll be one of two classes that's bookended by a championship that won my senior year of high school. Uh, it's a little sad. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, college was a great experience. Uh, I'm realizing this. I come home, and it's just weird. The world feels very small. Uh, everyone's from the same place. It's, I've been hanging out with my high school friends. Love my high school friends, but, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't feel like you left ever. It's kind of weird. But uh, college is a great experience. You love it. You don't realize that you're learning all these things. At least I feel like I'm learning things all the time and new things and learning how to think in new ways. I feel like you're always a free thinker anyway. Uh, you know you it. Know. Uh, so it's sad a little bit, but I'm ready to move on. I need to get an actual life. I can't sleep till 3 p.m. every day and skip class. And don't tell mom. My grades were so bad. Don't listen, mom. All right. Well, we'll touch on that a little bit more. So, I mean, I set this whole thing up assuming that uh, College 1, Endgame, slash the Avengers 2, Thrones 3. Is that true? Oh, for sure. I mean, I got bored with Thrones. We've talked about this before. I couldn't make it past season 5. Uh, and then I, you and Dad would watch, and I guess when I'd come home from school, so that'd be the second half. I came, came home every early May, so that would be the second half of a what eight to ten episode season? How long are the the seasons usually? Ten the last episodes? the last two were were six. seven and six, yeah. Um, but they were mostly ten episodes. So I see the second half of the past couple seasons, or and and the seven episode one. So I knew I knew what would happen at the end of the season, and maybe so I can't really hop on this bandwagon that everyone's saying that the the show violated people's character arcs. I can just say what I saw. I watched the very last three episodes of, of Game of Thrones, which might be the three worst <laughs> object, objectively. I, I know there's apparently the Dornish were in Game of Thrones besides Oberyn, and apparently they're really hated. I don't the know. I didn't snakes. Have, yeah, I didn't have to see any of that. Uh, well, but, uh, yeah. It was just like weird television. Like these episodes were like written badly. Like they felt like they were written by a child. Um, so here, here, here's my question for you though. So you're someone that read the books way back when you thoroughly enjoyed them. The show yes, didn't sir. captivate you enough to keep you in to reel you in. So well, I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure about that. And I can explain why. Okay. But my question for you is like, what reeled you in and made you decide, okay, I have to watch the three episodes. Was it just FOMO? This is, you know, there's so many people saying this is hype. This is the mainstream. I have to catch in. So like I can talk about the water cooler kind of thing. Was it FOMO or was it, was it general intrigue and, you know, captivation with the story at hand that drew you in way back when you first started reading the books. Um, and I'll let you go from there. It's a big pop culture moment. I mean, literally everyone I know watches the show. And they kind of like look at me like I'm this weird old fart that I was like, oh, this show is getting, this show has been getting bad ever since they got past the books. You know, people when they, uh, when they discover something before other people do that, they feel like they have ownership over it. Yeah, you I feel like pompous asshole. I feel like people immediately, whenever I said that, were like, I never said like, oh, the books are better. Because I don't really think that the books are necessarily better than the show. The last two books, you've read all the books. The last yeah, two books. The last two the last the last two suck. The first three are really good, and the first four seasons of Game of Thrones are equally good because they're very faithful to the books. There's a few things that are different, like you know, Lady Stoneheart doesn't show up ever, but uh, for the most part, young. it's pretty. What young Griff? Yeah, but that's later. Yeah, I'm saying if if you count the first three books, first four seasons, 
I mean, and they were heavily influenced by George R. R. Martin. The dude's a genius. Like he's a really, really good writer. But in his defense, guy. Medill guy. In his defense, you know, when he realized he doesn't have a good story at hand and doesn't want to rush things, he doesn't pump it out because he doesn't have to. Unlike the showrunners who just wanted to end the show so that they can move on to Star Wars and probably make even more money. How the hell did they get hired for Star Wars? These guys are terrible. Okay, you say that, but they authored this whole thing up until this point, right? Like, I think that's kind of hindsight bias. Yeah, but it's easier to adapt something to a to a. I'll take that back. It's very hard to adapt something yeah. to a movie. For a TV show, I feel like it's easier because you have a lot more, especially something that's released on one of these like subscription services, because you can be like flexible with each episode each season doesn't have to be the same length of episodes you know like and he has like each they have hbo's budget now i wouldn't want to produce this show but they had really good material to work with and a lot of freedom um and the way that the books are set up interestingly is really really good for tv because the books are like every chapter is from someone else's point of view mm-hmm. so it's kind of like how ensemble tv works anyway um so but but I don't disagree with that whole thing that they succeeded in adapting from the books. But like, still, they delivered a cinematic accomplishment, right? Which kind of goes into like my next question in terms of television shows and like pop culture as a whole. Is Game of Thrones the greatest accomplishment like cinematically? And is it the greatest show of the millennium, greatest show of the decade? I mean, obviously, it depends on like, I know you haven't necessarily watched like The Wire, right? So no, I didn't watch the wire or breaking bad or, or breaking lost or I'm not really a TV guy. When I think about it, um, I mean, uh, blue mountain state of course was a, a masterpiece. Uh, okay. So I'll say this game of Thrones. <laughs> wows. The visuals are amazing and they've gotten steadily better. You can see how the budgets increased over each of the season and how like the animation's gotten better and the sets are gorgeous and all this, except when they leave water bottles and coffee cups in them. Um, but over time, as that that has gotten better, movies have gotten better, and I don't think visuals wow people anymore. And I think that you couldn't argue with a lot of people that the last few episodes had some of the most stunning visuals of the series, and people mm-hmm. weren't complaining because of that. I mean, the whole thing with the Dothraki, you know, that's like a really cool sequence. You know, like uh, Dad was telling me this. There's never been a, a scene put to TV or the movies where like they build up like this massive, massive charge, like really well. And then the charge just doesn't work at all. Uh, mm-hmm. And the, like, so that the Dothraki, their, uh, their uh, scimitars, whatever you call those going flaming out in the, the night. That's a really beautiful shot. Shot with Daenerys with the dragon wings behind her. And the last yeah, that episode. just blew up on social media. I mean, like these are really cool. Like everything looks cool, but looking cool isn't good enough for people anymore. I mean, if you release a show in the eighties, I think people will be wowed because yeah, it's amazing. It's unlike anything you've seen. And you know, movies like that have succeeded over time. Why do you think Avatar is the highest grossing film of all time? But I mean, Michael Bay is good with visuals and I don't think anyone, you know, so is so, happy for him. So to this point though, I mean, yeah, I like, I'm still deciding how I feel about the finale. Personally, I didn't agree with all the hate the season's been getting along the way. Um, But it kind of ties back to one point. It's just like, okay, let's say, I I don't think I necessarily disagree with you if you say season eight sputtered out, right? But like, was there any way in which a show this big 
didn't sputter out you know like was there a realistic no. way for them to end it i know there's the complaint that they needed more time yeah, well, i was gonna, I was gonna to do it i was gonna say this aside from you know what actually i'm gonna take that back i was gonna say aside from brand being king and i think it would have been fine if brand was named king they just needed to like lengthen everything a little bit so you understood because like danny turning evil is a really good and tragic plot point like right. I mean, and they've been setting it up for years they've been setting it up but in like an anakin skywalker sort of way where it's like oh you know she's a little crazy you know anakin kills the sand people you know oh he's a little crazy but it's like you know from 15 minutes from him saying like i'm not gonna you know kill someone in the whole like mace windu confrontation with the chancellor and then like 15 minutes later he's murdering children uh in the throne room like this really or not the throne room wherever he is and like that you know what i'm talking about anakin kills the children da daenerys doing this feels exactly the same and i think that people your the good young characters ones. good characters turning evil is classic i mean it's a tragedy you want shakespearean tragedies that's you know one of the two original forms of storytelling and it's really powerful there's so many movies where the good guy turns evil uh and that's powerful but if you don't like if it doesn't feel warranted which i think that one scene didn't feel warranted then what it it's not satisfying i mean you literally could have you could have teased that she was crazy for a while and you know what they literally could have done that whole what? scene with her her flying on uh drogon and Rhaegal. Rhaegal is the other dragon green dragon yeah is he green uh and then he gets shot all of a sudden out of the air when she thinks she's one and then she goes psychotic like that would have made a lot more sense she cares about her dragons like she sees the castle and is like oh yeah now it's time for me to go crazy uh yeah but the build-up in episode four was like she was being kind of nuts like episode four was the dumbest episode it was literally like they kill the dragon and they kill miss sandy and then she's like you know she's like eh. and then like that was that was the worst episode by far <laughs> uh, that that episode was so stupid um i'll stand by episode five i'll say it i, I think, think it was such an accomplishment five, i think episode five would have been fine it's just that it it would have been you know what? episode five would have been really good and i've i've been reading a lot of stuff on the internet so i don't know who to credit this to but uh i saw this like episode five if it was the end of season eight and then you left on this cliffhanger of like john and aria like walking through the runes and realizing what danny did and that's how you end the season and then you have a whole season to reconcile with all of that that like that's that would have been more satisfying like th it really feels rushed like danny like you know you know you know what it reminded me of a bit uh michael b jordan is like king of wakanda for like three hours in in black panther Top. like i always said that 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 movie had like in 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 uh movie time not in in us no, no, no i'm kidding uh he uh yeah you know he like takes over and then he's like ah oh, things are gonna change and then he like you know and then nice. he gets taken out uh and like that was great but my biggest problem with that that movie was you know how rushed it felt and this felt the same way like i liked i really liked how everything ended up like plot point by plot point the show makes a lot of sense and you can see they're building towards it but all of a sudden it just like it's like all this stuff just drops and like thrones is really uh up until that point is really a slow burner and this 
the last three episodes just really felt like it was like these massive consequential things coming into a head all of a sudden that hadn't been built up to. You know what Thrones always was like to me? You know that scene in Inglorious Bastards where they're in the bar and you just like know everyone's gonna die. They're playing that drinking game with like the cards on your head. And it's like, it's like we know how we're gonna get there, but the interesting part's the buildup and not the actual result that they all end up dying. Uh, Thrones really felt like the opposite of a Quentin Tarantino movie to me lately. And it was just disappointing. Maybe, you know what, I, I, I didn't watch, so I can't say like I really maybe didn't see all the character development throughout. I've watched bits and pieces and maybe I missed stuff, but like stuff really, really just came to a head fast and it just seemed disappointing. So just for the sake of moving on, uh, my one last question in regards to Thrones, uh, as we'll move on to Endgame. Um, if the sixth book comes out tomorrow, do you read it? Oh, yeah. The, the book left us on a great uh, cliffhanger because we don't know who young Griff is. And, if and the John show, dies. And John dies. I forgot. That's how the book ends because that's yep. how. Yeah. So, and if young Griff, I mean, the show introduced John as Aegon and young Griff is supposedly Aegon. So maybe, you know, the show, the show sometimes uses different names. Like uh, Yara was Asha mm -hmm. in the, in the books, but uh, you know, like so maybe they're maybe they're using george rr R. martin's ideas to further it but like that's a really interesting storyline he comes in all of a sudden and he's like i'm young griff and he has john Connington with him and all that stuff and he reaches westeros at the end of the fifth book and like mm -hmm. he even dies at the end of that and you don't know who killed him and like all this stuff is going on and like it's a really good end to that one that sets up hopefully what's better than the fourth and fifth book because those are both a mess I mean, that was how he wrote them. He wrote them intending it to be one book and realized he had made too many characters and he just split them. Like they happen at the same time. It's just too loose. Like that's when the world got too loose. If he starts cutting it down back again, it could be, it should be a really, really good book. I'll read it for sure. So you were, you were never out on the story. It was more of the show. I was a little bit out on it, but it's hard to be invested in something that hasn't been around for eight years. Yeah. Uh, for the sake of moving on, we'll move on. But yeah, all good thoughts on Thrones. Endgame, though. It's the end of this generation of heroes, the heroes we grew up with. It's been a bit since it came out. You wrote your review. You were one of the 4% or whatever that number ended up being. Uh, you, you cast your lot with the folks who didn't necessarily like Endgame. My question for you, have you seen it again yet? And if so, do you have any thoughts? Has anything changed after you've let it stew, If even if you haven't seen it again? Um, no, the, the thought of sitting through a three hour movie again has been not appealing to me, which is the opposite infinity where I was immediately excited to go see it again, even though it was like a two and a half hour movie, which is pretty long and relatively about the same. And, you know, I've eaten up three hour movies before I've seen Lord of the Rings. I've seen, um, what's it? The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, you know, it's, if a good movie is good, you'll watch it. But, uh, no, the funny part is I. The funny part is I haven't thought about it at all, which means it didn't have any impact on me, which is not good. Uh, and I've, as I've read more and more, I've seen the internet turn against it a little bit more, which I don't think really? people. I think not in like a severe way, not in like a. Um, but people like definitely are picking apart the plot and everything because it's a little ridiculous. Um, so, I don't know. 
I have no interest in seeing it again. Dad wants to see it with me. But uh, dang, gonna leave him hanging. But no, I mean, look, your whole thing was like, I should have felt more, right? Uh, um, yeah. And and this was something that you really cared about and was really important to you. Do you think it's you kind of addressed this in your review, but still looking back on it, do you think it's your fault for building up too much to a degree? Not like blaming you when I say that. Is it like our fault with these hype machines building up to be too much and then being disappointed in that regard? Or do you just like purely think it's not a good movie and that's that? Um, I actually don't think I hyped it up this that much. I didn't like over read. I didn't read too much stuff on the internet about it because I didn't want anything to be spoiled. I kind of came in with tempered expectations because uh, I know what it feels like to come in with really high expectations and be disappointed. I was a little distracted also. Um, you know what I, it's like to lose. Yes, feel so know. desperately um, that you're right. You have to fail all the same. Sorry. Okay, Brolin. Uh, but uh, I don't think I came in with too high expectations. I do typically, but I think for this one, I was, I guess I've grown older and wiser. I've aged like a fine wine. Uh, <laughs> so I don't, I don't know. I haven't thought about the movie at all. Like, I, I don't even care that like Black Widow and Tony Stark died, which is like, you're, uh, it's not sad. Like when Yondu died, you know what? If you think if you think about that scene in Guardians, and Yondu is like one of the least pivotal like Avengers. He didn't even make it to yep. become an Avenger. If you think about that scene, think about that scene again. Guardians of the Galaxy Two is not even that good of a movie. But like Yondu dies, and like there's that scene, and the the Ravagers are listening to that song by. Uh, Oh, what's that song? You know the song I'm talking, Father and Son? Yeah. Uh, and like Rocket like cries to the screen. Like that's an impactful moment. That's a really, really sad moment. And like you feel a lot and you like understand like, you know, sacrifice and like the weight of what the characters are feeling and stuff. Like Endgame, like there was, I don't know. Like I haven't even thought about it once since so, I've watched it. So to build off that, one thing I want to address I've seen the word fan service so much. And that was the first thing I thought about when I walked out of the movie. But personally, I cared so much about the characters that fan service was perfectly fine for me. It's one of these things too. It's like, I don't really know how they were supposed to send all these iconic characters out. It's kind of similar to Thrones with me. Maybe I've just lost my critical edge over time. Maybe I'm less of a curmudgeon and more of a realist. But um, my... My thing with this, um, my question is, do you, I mean, first of all, is kind of catering to fan service a bad thing? That's my first question. My second thing is, do you still see yourself keeping up with the MCU? Do you see yourself going to see the next Spider-Man movie, Black Widow's solo movie, question mark? Like, are you going to keep up with the MCU moving forward? Yes. And I think that uh, I'll answer the second one first and then the first one second. Uh, yes, and I'm excited for the MCU because they're going to scale things back down. And what I'm starting to realize for the most part is those movies are the better ones. Um, and they're more rewatchable. Like, the, all, all the gems in the MCU are the not the bigger ones. Like, I don't really care to ever watch Civil War again. I don't care to watch, like, Age of Ultron again. I'll defend Infinite, Civil War. I like Civil War, but, like, I'm not itching to see it. The one I have been looking for again is Winter Soldier. I've seen Spider-Man Homecoming, like, five or six times i've seen the gardens of the galaxy like six times i love thor ragnarok i just watched that recently and like all it came on netflix and like all my friends have been watching it again because it's just such a fun rewatchable movie 
the fun Marvel movies are the low ones, and the ones coming out coming forward are going to be low ones. And I am the new Spider-Man movie looks great. So like, there's it, a lot of intrigue there. And Jake Gyllenhaal is the best, so he has a great name. So, um, uh, second question: Fan service isn't necessarily a bad thing. Like, for example, Marvel has Stan Lee cameos and everything, and that's like kind of a cutesy one-off thing. Um, the problem with fan service is that, in general, if you're thinking about film theory, like uh, the whole point of a film is to get you invested in it because you they want you to connect with things and they want you to feel like you're part of the experience, like you're experiencing with the characters. That's when film works. When you're taken out of the experience, if something like happens and you're like, oh, like your immediate thought is like, oh, the internet got what it wanted. It's a little like, disappointing so i'm gonna think of two examples so that are good and bad so captain captain america getting the the hammer is a good example of fan service because mm -hmm. it fits with his character it like you know it they was it. a little bit but it like fits with the character he's just like the best dude and it's in the final fight between good and evil and he's worthy like that that all makes sense to me like the time traveling part where it was like you know best of moments like uh captain america somehow going in an elevator with like all the dudes again that he was trapped in the elevator with last time even though it was like different years and different scenarios like that's kind of stupid you know like that's like one of the best scenes what he does end up saying to them when he says oh hail hydra to get out of there is smart and good fan service because it makes sense with the character and it makes sense with the moment like I mean, the Star Wars movies are probably the most criminal with this, with like, you know, C-3PO going like, hello there, like, and showing up when Carrie Fisher walks on the screen the first time, and like everyone cheers because they're like, C-3PO. Um, or like uh, Carrie Fisher's like, um, when Princess Leia uses the force to like escape from space, you know, someone there was like, our fans want to see Leia use the force because she never really got to use it in the original series. And, you know, they dreamed of that scene. That's the problem with fan service. When it when it, when my mind gets taken out of the film for too much of a time, it doesn't you know it doesn't feel as powerful. But like I mean, in reference to the current Star Wars movies, like when they show you know the Millennium Falcon for the first time in Force Awakens, oh that's like a pile of bricks or whatever, and that's clearly like a clap moment. Like, are you cool with that? Yeah, because that's fun. Like, like, but it was it was part of the story. Like, it was it was them escaping, and it just so happens that they find you know the Millennium Falcon. It can get if if you do it too many times, which I feel like that movie did a little bit. It can get you know it's resting on the laurels of too much in past without building on it. Um, I mean, kind of kind of playing off your whole thing with Endgame. You know, I should have felt more uh, not even thinking about not wanting to go see it again. Um, my thing, I don't know, even not reading about it or hyping it up too much, I still just think it's like we spend so much time talking about and thinking about what's going to happen in this movie, you know, this, that, you know, we made a Deadpool about it, right? Like trying to figure out who's going to die, talking about that for years. And then it comes and then it happens and it's three hours and bang, it's over. And like, yeah, part of me, it's like, I'm not necessarily thinking about Endgame as it races and might make the most money of all time box office. I'm not necessarily thinking about Endgame every second anymore, but like, still in the moment, the those, you know, you just think about like there's six people or whatever in a writing room who are deciding how this will play out to 
millions or billions of people, however many, and their decisions, you just like embrace and that happens. And then we're going to probably go talk about it more. It's just funny with these big franchises, franchises like Thrones and Endgame, like how all the talking about it and lead up and aftermath, like that's taken over so much of the media consumption versus like the actual movies themselves. So I feel like it's, or TV shows themselves. So I feel like it's very easy to get lost with like, after seeing the movie, not necessarily needing to see it again. It's like, okay, that happened. I've moved on. Is that all fair take? Did that sound like a ramble? I agree with you, but I also think that when I like a movie, the first thing I want to do is go see it again. Uh, no, first, I agree. I, I I'm, said, just, I'm just saying in terms of like end game, this build up as like this event, it's like it happened. There was the event. I saw what happened. And now I'm like, do I need to see it again? You know? Yeah. I mean, cause I haven't seen it again yet either. If you, if you boil it down then too, is not part, not an event and just a movie. It's whether like you think the movie would be fun to revisit in a few years because a movie, once it comes out, it's not just that it still exists and you can still watch it whenever you want. I mean, we're people still watch movies from the 1930s. You know, I've seen films from the 1920s and 1910s. Like it didn't just come out and then, you know, disappear back into the vacuum. It's whether or not it's a good film. And I think that's a little bit of the problem with these events is that like the event can be good, but the film itself also has to be good uh, to back it up for me to like it. It's it's fine. It's not a big deal if Endgame isn't the best movie or if Endgame, you know, people did think it was a good movie. I'm just salty. Uh, you know, it's not a big a deal, but it's just whether or not when we critique things, whether or not we want to watch it again. Yeah. Moving on to the last thing in the Endgame. College. It's over. You're on to the real world. You touched on it a little bit before. But I mean, just walk me through those emotions. Scared, nervous, excited, everything in between. Uh, you explain what you'll be doing too, and just kind of give your general thoughts on selling out to the man. Uh, I was a little scared, but like, you know, college, you don't realize this. You have way too much free time. College is the, the easiest part of anyone's life. Everyone who complains about how hard college is, <laughs> you have so much free time. Uh, you know, says you. <laughs> at a certain point, everyone needs to start waking up at 8 a.m. every day. And, having the weekends off and getting a normal life. Uh, maybe not everyone, but I needed it. Uh, I needed to get out of that environment for a little bit. So I was, I was kind of uh, decomposing towards the end of college. I had nothing to do. I got a job in, in November. So I've, I've had nothing to do for the past few months. But uh, I love Duke. I can't wait to go back and visit. Uh, I'm hoping to go to grad school at some point at Duke. Uh, it's just the best place in the world. But when you come back for grad school, you're an adult. It's a little different. The undergrad life is yeah. is, is done for me. Uh, but uh, yeah, so I'm uh, I'm heading west. I'm going on a on a road trip. I'm gonna find myself. I'm gonna discover myself. I'm gonna write a John Green fan fiction afterwards. Um, and then I'm coming back. And then uh, I'm moving to DC. And I'm working at a consulting firm like every duke kid does so uh that's 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 it that's life so i got i got two and a half more months to be a, a free person and then uh that's that's my life until i'm 60. you're chained to the desk until you're 60. um nah but like in all serious you know four years you talked about wanting to you know take those weekends off 8 a.m this and that 
What would you say over those four years is the greatest practice or change in your lifestyle that you learned or just lesson in that regard? Oh, my habits got so much worse over time. I was like a health nut in high school. I ran like every single day. You know, in the past two days, I've worked out for the first two times in I think 2019. Don't tell anyone. Oh, I did yoga, but I don't know if that counts. You played basketball uh, at all or anything? Like a few times. Uh, <laughs> when my IM team needed someone. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I really, my habits got better. I think I got smarter. I can talk better. I can, I can talk, talk good, good now. I can talk good now, boy. Uh, uh, but uh, I'm more confident. I talk a lot in class now. I don't think I used to do that. But uh, I don't know. I feel like I really my habits really decompose. So I didn't have a cell phone until the, the end of high school, and then I got it in uh, in college, and I feel like it made me such a worse person. Yeah, but isn't everyone terrible with their cell phones? Like, yes, I try not to be bad. When I'm in a room, like hanging out with people, I never take out my phone. Uh, which is why I miss a lot of texts and stuff. But uh, that's the one time when I'm alone, it's over. GG. This is this is fair. But, I mean, I guess, you know, we touched on a little bit. Duke basketball, big part of your life at, at Duke. What are your thoughts on it all? Could you sum up that experience in one word? If you could, um, what would it be? Disappointing. No, that was the, <laughs> actually that's kind of true. Have you seen that interview with uh, Kit Harrington? No. <laughs> oh, that's oh you. If you haven't watched all the Game of Thrones cast members reacting to uh, the final season, so oh, wait, asking, I like, have seen that. Yeah. Wh what do you th what do you think? Disappointing. <laughs> uh, I mean, disappointing is a pretty good word. I hate the one and done era, but I was around for a lot of great moments. I saw the game, uh, Syracuse's first ever game in Cameron, where Bayheim got ejected and. Uh, CJ Fair charged uh, Rodney Hood at the end of the game, and Rodney went off in the playoffs. <laughs> um, and they won the game against number one Syracuse. Uh, I was at two games where UN we beat UNC and two where we lost. Uh, I was at the game where Grayson Allen hit that game winner over Virginia after Malcolm Brogdon, another stud in the NBA, thought he had sealed the deal. I got to see Zion. RJ Barrett, Cam Reddish, Brandon Ingram, Jason Tatum, Harry Giles, Marvin Bagley, Wendell Carter, Gary Trent, Grayson Allen. You know, I've seen a lot of guys who are big NBA players. I'm watching NBA games now and I'm like, oh, half those dudes went to school with me. This uh, Warriors Trailblazers game, like four Dukies were on the floor, or three were on the floor. Gary Trent is stuck on the bench because he sucks. Uh, Hey, but, down to down to Daniel Jones graduating in the same room as you at the same degree, right? I yeah. mean, that's the number six overall pick. He was in the airport with me too on the way back. But um, and, and Luke May, yeah, and Luke May was there too. He was so chatting I, up with some Florida you know what? fans. Memorable, memorable is a good word. I'll always remember it. Mm -hmm. uh, you got some time. You had to go on ESPN with Jay Bilas, right? Oh Bill. yeah, I was on ESPN. You know, I said they didn't use the the entire take, but I guaranteed that Duke would win a championship on College Game Day. And uh, they didn't use the take. I think they just I said something about trying to sound smart, like Jason Tatum's going to get integrated back into the offense, and then we're going to be real good. That Duke team had <laughs> zero chemistry. Luke Kennard was our best player. <laughs> remember Luke Kennard? Yeah. Harry I Giles, though. Um, Harry Giles. Rip.
I like someone watching like a Harry Styles like highlight video from high school. It's like so sad. He's a good dude. He's a really good dude, but he just has had a bad life. Um, I mean, last question. We're gonna wrap this thing up. What comes next? I mean, I'm assuming you're still gonna watch Duke. Uh, shows, movies. What are you excited for? Can anything ever fill those voids? Because again, like top of the podcast, I explained. There's these passions. There's these passions that drive our everyday lives. It's easy to say, like, you know, why would you ever go into the entertainment industry? You go into consulting, go into tech, you know, go into something that's like actually meaningful, quote unquote. But like in reality, entertainment's such a big part of our lives. Uh, maybe I'm saying this just to justify me staying up till one o'clock working on this podcast. But you know, you're someone who's passionate about a lot of things. What comes next? So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an interesting take. So, you know. Dad doesn't really seem to care that much about stuff. He's always kind of on the periphery of things. And over time, I'm, I'm feeling like I'm caring less and less. You know what? I feel like I feel like you get more and more things to worry about. And I feel like it's just like a fun escape, but it becomes less serious to you when you have other serious things going on. But when he got kids, he got back into sports. You and I are huge sports fans. Uh, he started rooting for the Mets again with me. And, uh, you know, and he, he talks a lot of trash with football. And he got to see two giant Super Bowls recently. And like, you know, I think that I think that it kind of comes and goes in cycles. So I've seen myself caring a little bit less and less, which is a little sad. It was a big passion of mine. But I'm trying to get back into my uh, entertainment consuming ways now that I'm done with school and I can kind of do whatever I want. I watched all of Barry season one yesterday, all straight up. I don't know What'd if I think? told I really, really liked it. What a show. I've been telling it's, you unlike, for so long. Well, I never had an HBO account. Yeah, okay. Uh, Episode the, six, though? I, yeah, I got the free trial so that I could finish Thrones. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, I don't know. Episode, episode so, six of Barry, season one. Is that the one where he, uh, you know... Yep. Yeah, that was... I was like, no! That was I, think the, I think the interesting part is that he's, like, such a bad dude. It's yeah, like it's a show like, where, like, you know, you're supposed to root for this guy because he's so likable, but he's a horrible human being. Yeah. Plans to watch Barry season two? Yeah, I got a day to do it. So hopefully I get it done. I probably can. It is really good. I'm assuming you're still going to watch Duke basketball, right? Uh, yeah. Vernon Carey is uh, a little mix of Marvin Bagley and Zion Williamson. You heard it first here. All right. Put that on Sports Center. He's Jake Gregor Lipperman. Uh, he'll be writing for us all summer, question mark. Um, but thanks for talking, Jake, on the end game. Deuces. That's a wrap. It was a long one. I hope you enjoyed it. To follow along with everything Jake and Threadless are doing, follow him at Ska on Twitter. That's S-K-A-W. And log on at Threadless.com. For my brother Jake, well, he'll be around again. As always, you can follow me on Twitter at ByNateGL. You can follow Unplugged at Unplugged. That's U-N-P-L-U-G-G underscore D. And yeah, thanks for tuning in. Until next time, see ya.